So yeah, I guess the mission now is much bigger. Now I'm challenging capitalism. Now I'm saying things like shareholders have no right to be considered more important than the planet or its people. You know, now I can say things like every business should be giving 50% of its profits to charity because it's awesome. We've done it for 15 years. We absolutely love it. It's done nothing but good for our business. And I can show you 15 years of growth and P&L and a strong balance sheet and a resilient business as proof. Welcome to Good Business Talking, and I'm your host, Ravi Rai. Today, I'll be speaking to Cressy Wesling, co-founder of Elvis and Cressy, who are a luxury goods manufacturer that was born out of rescuing London's fire hoses from landfill. A little over a decade later, they're now working with 15 other rescued materials and collaborating with the likes of Burberry. A few things we spoke about how businesses have a civil responsibility to solve problems, how owners or CEOs bravery is what's needed to ignite change within an organization. And she shared her perspective on how shareholders ought to be considered alongside people and planet. I really like this because Cressy was so clear, so focused, and she has a clear call to action for us all to consider. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome, Cressy. Thanks for taking the time with me this morning. No, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. So um, what, can you give us the listeners maybe a little bit of a background around the business, Elvis and Cressy, you know, size, what you do, kind of what you're all about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elvis and Cressy is something that we started in 2005. We discovered that London's decommissioned fire hose was going to landfill and we wanted to do something about that. And the business was born of of that rescue mission. Um, And we've been doing it now for 15 years. Uh, Our first workshop was a sewing machine beside our bed in a house shared Brixton. Um, And we now have two Uh, kind of micro factories, one in Kent and one in Istanbul, and a team of about 25 working on all of the products that we make. Hang on, let's just get this right. Your business was born from you saving what was going to be landfilled fire hoses from the London Fire Brigade. Yes, yes. I've always been interested in waste. So in 2004, I arrive here and I start thinking, where's the waste? What's the waste? Want to see it? And this was before you could just Google ONS data. So I went to the British Library and started reading, you know, basically reams and reams of statistics. And I discovered that in 2004, in that year, 100 million tons of material went to British landfills. Wow. And I thought, this is a tiny island. Like, So I started going to landfill sites to get a bird's eye view, I suppose, of what this material was. And then quickly realized that if I was going to do something about it, I, at, you know, in my early 20s, wasn't going to be able to solve 100 million ton a year problem, but I could pick one. And then I saw the fire hose and then I met the fire, fire brigade. And, you know, when I saw the fire hose, it was love at first sight. It's a it's a charming waste. You know, it spoke to me. <laughs> so how are you is 20 something year old going to landfill waste sites in the UK to figure out what's being dumped? Yes. Okay. Just tell me a little bit about where does this conscious thinking around waste recycling, where did that spark come from for you? When I was a kid, I remember going to the dump with my dad and, and, and we lived in the middle of Canada. So 
when you went to the dump, that was the only place you'd ever see seagulls. So that's kind of this, this, this early childhood memory. Waste is always a way. It's always something that you don't really think about all the time until you're confronted with it. And then when I moved from Canada to Hong Kong, I was 16 years old. I got, I got a scholarship to finish high school there. I went you know, on my own, not with my family or anything like that. And I was suddenly, you know, this small town girl in a big city state. And it was a city state that had waste problems. I'd never seen consumption on that scale. I'd never seen single use paper, plastic packaging on that scale. And it was a bit overwhelming. And then I thought, you know, when I went to university, I studied politics because I, I, I genuinely really believe waste is a political issue. A lot of the other things that I wanted to fix about the world, because I, you know, had the, the, the big massive ego that a lot of um, 17, 18 year olds have that you think I'm going to fix all of these problems. So I went off to study politics thinking that, that I would, you know, become the prime minister of Canada and sort everything out. Um, but over the course of my degree, I realized that actually politics is not the right venue for me. I didn't really know what my skills were good for. I didn't really know what my personality was good for. I didn't know how I was going to be able to contribute to solving some of these big problems. And then after university, I got my first job back in Hong Kong. And I was working for a venture capital company and they invested in hard technologies. So not software. I've never understood why software gets called tech. To me, tech is a machine. Um, but they invested in hard technologies and a lot of them were environmental, like really eco uh, air conditioning units. Um, an, an amazing, probably the life changing tech for me was a swine waste separating technology. Um, you know, I mean, how fascinating is this? a pig produces 20 liters of wastewater a day. That wastewater can be very good for the soil if there's mm. a relatively small proportion of pigs to land. But the way that we intensively farm pigs, we are destroying the soil and the rivers around them, particularly in China, where of the world's billion strong pig population, half of that is in China at a, and at any given time because they have a kind of a pork heavy diet. Now, that pig waste in China is decimating. So we discovered this Canadian swine waste separation technology, which allows you to turn pig waste into products. And that really, you know, kind of turned me on to the idea that any waste problem could be tackled with creativity, ingenuity, and, you know, and care. So, so after that, I wanted to know where every sewage outflow pipe was. I wanted to know where every landfill site was. I wanted to see every recycling center. I wanted to get to grips with, with everything. And the more I dug into it, the more I was fascinated by it. I mean, people think that you show a society is civilized by how it treats other people, by you know, the art and the opera and the music. Um, I think those two things are, are important, very, very important. But if a society is not dealing with its waste, I don't think you can call it civilized. Hmm. So this business... Uh, of making, could I say it's kind of luxury accessories? Yeah. What is the mission of Elvis and Chris? I think the, the mission started with a very narrow focus to rescue London's fire hoses. That was it. It was, we were on this rescue mission. None of it was going to go to landfill. All of it was going to come to me. And the only way for me to sustainably take it was to turn it into something else. Because otherwise I was going to become a fire hose hoarder, <laughs> which is not productive. Um, and that is really where Elvis came into the mix because, you know, I have this sort of global view that we need to solve problems and we need to be creative. And that means we need to, you know, change our view on what a raw material is, change our view about what waste is. 
But when it comes to technically turning a fire hose into something that people love and will cherish and will keep for a long time, that's 100% Elvis. And, and that's why, you know, the company is Elvis and Cressy and not the other way around. I designed the business model, I would say, but he designs all of the goods. He really delivers in, in that regard. And it was really the transformation of them into luxury goods that allowed us to, you know, challenge lots of things. You know, we can challenge the luxury industry. We can say, guys, you've structurally failed. You're exploiting people and you're degrading the environment. It's not good for anyone. You know, we can, we can challenge the, co- the very concept of waste. If we can show that something, you know, as difficult as fire hose that has lived a life of rescue and for 25 years and is scarred and is damaged. And if we can resurrect that and turn that into, uh, you know, a handbag that, you know, some of our customers will say, this is the last handbag I'm ever going to own then we've definitely disrupted people's ideas of not just waste, but of consumption. So yeah, I guess the mission now is much bigger. Now I'm challenging capitalism. Now I'm saying things like shareholders have no right to be considered more important than the planet or its people. You know, now I can say things like every business should be giving 50% of its profits to charity because it's awesome. We've done it for 15 years. We absolutely love it. It's done nothing but good for our business. And I can show you 15 years of growth and PL and a strong balance sheet and a resilient business as proof. So yeah, the, the mission is much wider now. The high horse that I'm sitting on is, is pretty high. <laughs> it's pretty high now. So when we spoke before this, you mentioned about a, a, a quite a pivotal conversation you had at the World Economic Forum with the CEO of a luxury goods <laughs> yeah. manufacturer, right? Uh, on the brand yeah. of which I'll kind of abstain to mention. It was an interesting, intimate forum and everyone was supposed to be talking about the problems that they faced. Mm. And I thought it was really telling that most of the companies there were had narrowed in on one small problem. They weren't looking at the overall impact that their businesses were having. They were saying, oh, well, this this particular ingredient is difficult for us to obtain or you know, we, you know, we're having this problem in our supply chain. Um, and then I just told the story of Elvis and Cressy as, as honestly as I could. And I said, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. We have problems too. We're absolutely 100% not a perfect company, but we're on a journey. Um, and, and we're, and we're ahead and, and it's helping us to grow and it's bringing all kinds of goodwill to us. And it's, you know, and I think I told the story quite impactfully and he sort of turned to me and he said, yeah, but your company's not real. It's, it's a fantasy. Hmm. And, and I just thought, seriously, <laughs> you know, I've been invited to sit at this table because I'm a CEO of a business and is it a smaller business than yours? Yes. But do I have every right to be here? Absolutely. And it really brought home to me the idea that probably the reason why there's some structural failures within luxury is that because it's so traditional and because there's this very odd perception that particularly some of the some of the biggest, most famous brands are somehow more important or entitled to, you know, a position of superiority. Interesting. And that reminds me of something that you also said, and let me quote you if you don't mind. You said the industry has failed in many perspectives, whether it's slavery, exploitation and wages, etc. 
you know, we can't be environmental and not be social. They come together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. The the, the last bit of that statement, y- that you can't be environmental and not social, of course that makes sense. Because one of the biggest problems we have as human beings is that we've taken ourselves outside of the natural world. And we're not. We're not better than it. We're not in control of it. We are it. We are just another creature. We have no right to destroy the habitats of other creatures. You know, we have we have no dominion over this land. I feel that that's a that's maybe where where we went wrong because we we are in nature. We're part of it, and if we're going to, you know, solve the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis, we have to change our idea of where we sit in in any kind of hierarchy. There isn't one. There is an ecosystem. We are a part of it, but we aren't on top of it, right? So, so that's quite important to me. And, and, and that's why when you start doing environmental things, of course, you have to engage with people. Of course, people have to be involved because there's people everywhere. And some of the best work that's being done for the environment is being done by small groups of people who are indigenous communities, people who are fighting for one particular bird or one particular species of lichen. You can't divide us because having been divided, you know, humans versus the planet is why we're causing so much destruction. It also stems from the fact that when you're building a business or when we were building this, we kept thinking all the time, how can we be better? Except what we wanted to get better at was not earning more money, but just being a better citizen, being a, being a better contributor to society, being uh, being able to sleep at night. So I guess Elvis and I feel a lot of responsibility for everything. And the best way we can express that is through the business and what it does. Give me the tangible stuff. How, how do you measure your business? How do you measure your impact? Um, we, we measure it in, in three ways. And we've always had kind of hard metrics. You know, we measure how much waste we can bring in, how much we can rescue over the course of a year in kilos. Um, or tons now, uh, how much we donate. So we 50% of our profits on a line-by-line line basis go to our charity partners. So we, we look at that figure and we're always trying to maximize that figure. Um, and then, you know, I suppose the last one, like any business, we look at the, we look at the P&L. These are not things we balance out. The mission is the most important thing. The finances is a, is a discipline. Financial side is, a, is an Excel spreadsheet. You can master that pretty quickly. It's boring, actually. <laughs> but the mission is is what gets us out of bed in the morning. Right. The, the kilos of waste, the donations to the fire service, the scholarships for Barefoot College, that is what makes it amazing. And we are always, especially through the pandemic, it's been interesting for us because, you know, we started going on these long walks because we weren't able to see anyone or go anywhere. Um, and we just said, right, we're gonna we're gonna double down. What are what are all the good, amazing things we haven't tried yet? Let's put those into practice. How much good can a good company do if a good company has the time to think of how much more amazing it can be? I mean, that's literally what we've been mapping out for the last uh, almost year now. That's all got to be fueled by money that's coming in as well. So, yep. in order for hope for you to have that sustainable business, what are the yeah the key was you really intently consciously, proactively focus on day to day or week to week? Well, I, I guess Elvis focuses on the transformation of goods. So his focus is on how amazing can we make these products? We, he wants to inject as much quality, as much craftsmanship, as much love into them as humanly possible. 
How can we make them better? So one of the things that we don't do is follow seasons. We don't have one belt for spring and then another one for winter. So if you if you were to buy one of our billfold wallets now, that billfold wallet hasn't changed. It's only improved. Every time we make a new batch, we tweak it to take on learnings from the last batch. So you're buying a wallet with 15 years worth of improvements in it. If you're making new things every season, every season, every season, then you lose that continuum of improvement. You, you genuinely do. And, and also we manufacture everything ourselves, which means that our team really takes that learning on board and, is, and, and retains that continuity. So I would say Elvis is, is, the, is pulling that lever, which is the quality lever. And my focus is really on how amazing the business can be. Because I, the, 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 a brand is, is only as valuable as people's perception of it. And I want to give people not a story, not a fairy tale, as my French counterpart thought, but just the truth. We don't have a marketing strategy. We just have the truth. Last night, um, I'm going to really try hard not to cry right now. I got a phone call completely out of the blue. This woman called and she said, hi, I'm calling from America. And I said, hi, lovely to talk to you. And she said, happy Thanksgiving. And I said, happy Thanksgiving to you too. And she said, my name is Sarah. I'm a nurse in the States. And I've been following your company for three years. I haven't bought anything from you yet, but I've been reading all of your newspapers. And I think it's amazing what you do. You know, I work a lot with first responders in the US. They've been really struggling through the pandemic. My husband and I go over to our local fire station. We take pizza, we do informal counseling. They are unable to cope with the death there. And she said, it's a huge issue. And she just wanted to say that her family Thanksgiving tradition was that they all had to call someone, a complete stranger that they were grateful for. And she called us, wow. you know, and, um, you know, that's why we, that's why we do this because it's, it's an expression of our gratitude for the work that the fire service does for the work that awesome people in the world are doing. And we want to be a part of that. We want to contribute to that. That's the brand we're building. It's something that's honest, it's something that's true, it's something that's trying incredibly hard to be the best citizen and contributor that it can be. And yeah, we don't need a marketing strategy. We just, we just need to keep, to keep going. So that's the lever that I suppose I pull. What a beautiful story. And uh, I can kind of see how your heart would swell up with that kind of feedback. Um, you said you make decisions based on standard business impact. But you also ask yourselves, is it going to make work better for other people's grandchildren? An extremely long-term view versus the year-on-year -year financial sustainability, or in fact, even quarter-on-quarter -quarter view that majority mm. of businesses uh, are focused on. You're really thinking decades out in terms of what you do in the impact mm. versus the equally important need to bring in revenue, to make profit, and to fuel the donations that you provide to charities. It leads us in the right direction. You know, it's the North Star. And it actually makes day-to-day -day decisions easier because there, you can't contemplate things that will lead you astray from that. So we can't be distracted by 
you know, short-term gains that would make the world worse for other people's grandchildren. We can't do that. So actually, I think having some really strong guiding principles makes your life easier. Having singular, um, you know, idea about the environment makes life easier because things that other companies might compromise on aren't even things we would contemplate. We don't have to bother contemplating them. You know, we haven't ever had sh external shareholders. I'm accountable to to Elvis and to the planet and to you know my nieces and nephews and kids down the road. I'm not accountable to people who want to know what our quarterly results are. If we ever do take on shareholders, we might not be producing quarterly results. Mm -hmm. I think they're an inappropriate lens if we're talking about a climate crisis and if a business isn't talking about a climate crisis right now. Uh, I don't know if they have a concept of reality. I don't know what news channels they're watching. More businesses have to be brave. Um, there's no reason why a business should exist to serve its investor community. That's not your only stakeholder. That's one. And it's not first among equals. It's not first at all. What will be first for you guys? It's the planet and its people, which I can't separate because we're the same thing. It's the earth and its inhabitants. That has to be number one, because just put it in the context of a house, right? You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a house. You wouldn't spend all of your life saving up enough money to be in the unbelievably privileged position to buy a house and then bring in woodworm and then get someone to bring a sledgehammer to the foundation that just, you said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to just pay you some money to chip away at that every day. Um, and you wouldn't start pulling off the roof tiles and selling them for 10p a piece. You just, that's not how you would treat your home. And that is how we treat the planet. And because we treat it like that, it, we're having a huge impact on the lives of future generations, whether those be future generations of human beings or future generations of water voles. You know, and I loved what you just said there, that businesses need to be brave. Mm. Um, how do I do that? What, what, what does that mean for me as a, you know, so I'm running this or business, I've got people relying on me for wages, I've got customers that are expecting product, I've got shareholders that want their returns. Um, yeah. So what does being brave, how does that show up for me for, from the lens of Cressy? Well, there's, there's sort of two things that I would think were inherently brave. One would be if you examined your business model, found the structural flaws in it, i.e. where it's degrading the environment or exploiting its people, and you eliminated it. And, th and this is what's interesting about like the concept of offsetting. You know, a lot of companies are going to offset their CO2 emissions, but, and that's cool. That's okay. But it, to me, it's only okay if it's a stopgap measure while you, while your business evolves to not produce CO2. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. So, so I would think, I would think it was incredibly brave if you, if you genuinely sat down and not just you on your own, but you and your teams and all of your colleagues. And you said, look, we've got to analyze this business because the model is unsustainable. Not, it's unsustainable for people and it's unsustainable for the planet. So we have to reinvent the business model. So th those and there are businesses that are going through a process of total reinvention. I think we'll see the big energy companies in the world become completely different companies. I wish they would do it a lot faster. I don't think they're being brave enough because certainly my impression of, of their bravery would also be the pace at which they're undertaking this change. I would also find it brave if someone said, you know what, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to be a part of this anymore. 
there are some companies, and maybe it's because of their shareholders and, and the way they're structured, that are willfully refusing to change. And mm. I think in, the, in that situation, don't work there. Don't allow it to ex also exploit your time and your talent. Take that somewhere else. And that's often what, you know, what I say when I'm talking to groups of university students is that think long and hard about the kind of companies that you work for because you're talented, wonderful, amazing people. Where are you going to put that energy? Don't give it to the destructive uh, businesses. Give it to the creative, innovative, regenerative businesses that need it more. Um, that's, that's also very brave, you know, taking, taking those kinds of personal pathways and just imagine how we could revolutionize industry if they just couldn't recruit anymore. If everyone walked out, it would be amazing. The job market is going to change it unbelievably dramatically. There are so many new jobs that are coming in renewable energy and in everything that we have to do to transition to a more just, equitable, green economy. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think it's time for people to kind of look at those, not, you know, not as a, oh, this is terrible. I have to retrain, but oh my gosh, what a privilege to, to be able to contribute to a better place. Setting up a business, any business is a tough gig, mm. um, in the early days in particular. Now you've done that with a business where you had a tons of raw material and trying to figure out what you do with that. And on top of that, you layer on the pathway to becoming a B Corp, mm -hmm. which in of itself is, is uh, consuming. Mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> well, people are always saying, why do we take on not just the pressure of running a business, but on all these other challenges as well? Why, you know, why are we Atlas-like adding to our burden? This is an honor to run a business this way. It's the only way I could run a business and sleep at night. So I actually don't think it makes running a business harder. I think it makes running a business easier. You could have that purpose mm -hmm. and not be B Corp. Why do the, the B Corp process as well? These are the people that I look up to. Um, you don't really meet that many social entrepreneurs or B Corp founders that are mean and nasty people. They tend to be awesome and inspiring. These are entrepreneurs that I consider to be my true peers. These are the people I want to uh, impress. When you're surrounded by a community of people who are on the same page, striving to make the world better in the same way that you are, or even in vastly different ways, you can be buoyed up by that. The community is important, very important. And also, you know, we've got to do something to fight against the, the greenwashing. We've got to put a line in the sand so that all of these companies who are really keen to get in on the purpose world and who are making all these insane claims, they can't become B Corps because they'd be found out. You know, it's, it's, it's important. And if you were talking to a, a CEO or a business owner that had an interest in pivoting their business to becoming a force for good, Mm -hmm. whether it's through B Corp or whether it's through some other mechanism, whatever it is, um, what advice would you give them? The, the B Lab assessment is open to anyone. So I would just say, just, just have a stab at it, run through it. It's completely confidential. You don't have to submit it. There's loads of businesses that are using it as a tool to see where they sit, to benchmark themselves, to see in what areas they might improve. 
it will point out to you where some of your flaws are. It'll tell you if you've got bad governance. It'll tell you if you have low stakeholder engagement. It'll tell you if you've got a long, complicated supply chain that's probably going to fall down somewhere at some point. You know, it'll tell you if you're not really a business built with the planet or its people in mind. So I would start with something like that because it will inform you about, you know, what kinds of things you need to think about. And then I would go to the people who comprise your company and I would try to engage with them at a cellular level and say, what are we going to do about where we sit in the world? What mark are we going to make? Who wants to be a part of where we could go from here? And maybe not all those people will stay. A CEO can't just do it on his own or her own, particularly if it's a large company. Um, if you've got 10,000 people working there, I don't think it's just a board that can make this decision without making sure that everybody feels a part of the mission as well. Um, in a smaller company like Elpis and I have, um, I, I can be a bit more dictatorial about it and just say, no, this is how we will do things. But even then, we're getting too big for that kind of nonsense behavior too. When you do that assessment and you see where you stand, I can see how you look at it and go, okay, there's work to do. Mm. Taking a, a, another persona of a, a more standard CEO, they go through that assessment and they're like rabbits with the headlights cutting out, thinking, that, "Oh my god, I've just failed in pretty every flipping metric. Mm. <laughs> you know, in every category, I'm not there." Yeah, and I feel overwhelmed, and I feel yeah. burdened, and I feel maybe I even feel a bit shameful of what I'm leading. Mm. What What would you say to that CEO? Well, I'd say that just pick the one that you're the most ashamed of and start there or pick the, or pick the one that somehow touches you on a personal level that really disappointed you or really inspired you and start there hmm. because we started off with collecting one fire hose we started off just making belts we didn't start with 15 waste materials and 25 people and all of these grand ideas about how we were going to disrupt the luxury industry we didn't we didn't start that way so you, you have to start somewhere because a, a deer in the headlights will get hit by the car. You have to move. <laughs> you have to. You have to take some action. That's probably the best response. I, I, <laughs> you've got to move, otherwise you're going to get right over. Um, now, you know, talking about disrupting the luxury industry, and you're kind of almost working with some of those guys now, right? Like, so the Burberrys, what you could say are your competitors in, in some places. So how, how's that working out? What's your intention there? What are you doing? Well, I can, t I can tell you one thing for sure. Burberry is 7,000 times larger than us, and they definitely don't think we're a competitor. Yes. <laughs> Yet. Um, I was giving a presentation about the leather solution at an event in London, and two people from Burberry approached me afterwards. And, and then after kind of years of negotiation, we formed this partnership with the Burberry Foundation. We always knew, particularly with the leather rescue project that we do, that the idea was bigger than we were, and the solution had potential for all kinds of brands all over the world. If we get some of the industry um, and some of the players to shift in little ways, that we can have a huge impact. So there aren't many businesses that we wouldn't work with, because you know if we know that we can impact just one of the things that they that they make and sell or one of their business practices, then it will be then it'll be grand. I mean, I had a I did a work a circular economy workshop yesterday for one of the biggest telecoms companies, and it, and people would say, why are you doing that? Well because they were open and upfront and honest with me and sent me a spreadsheet of all of the wastes that they produce, where they produce them and in what quantities. They reached out and asked for help and inspiration. 
any company that that it has got to grips with their waste to that extent and wants to take responsibility for them, I will show up and I will do what I can. One project that I'm really proud of is a, a forge where we're, we've always wanted to make our own hardware. We didn't want to do it using new metal. Um, we wanted to make it only using re renewable energy. And we couldn't find any technology that would allow us to do that because we effectively want to make metal hardware out of the aluminium cans that people throw out of their car windows. They drive by beautiful Kent country lanes around our workshop. So we started a project to design a solar powered forge. We, we are largely, you know, most of the way through that project. We're doing it with Queen Mary University, but it's an open source project. We're not designing a machine that we're going to patent and keep for ourselves. We're sharing it. And halfway through developing the machine, we got approached by this amazing program um, called Scaling Out for Impact, which has partnered us with entrepreneurs in South Africa so that we can work and learn and share with them. So I think before too long, we'll have two forges operating in South Africa, collecting waste there, creating jobs there and doing entirely different things. And those things will be completely different from what Elvis and I are doing. They'll run completely independently, but because we're all sharing this technology and the journey of this technology, what I learned from them will be how to make my forge cheaper here, mm -hmm. maybe. What they learned from me might be, you know, how to get the aluminium to behave in a certain way. But the, the premise is that we're not gonna get a circular economy unless we start to do wild levels of, collaboration but that's what i love about doing stuff in the open as well is that as soon as we announced that we were doing this in an open source way we just we had engineers from all over the world going try this have you tried that the the goodwill is yeah. it's totally overwhelming actually i was unprepared for it i was unprepared for the thousand emails that i received within three days of people asking to support the project and contribute to it and and that's a, a project i'm just so excited about and proud of and um, freaked out by because its potential is just enormous. But yeah, that's the kind of impact we want to have. I ask all my guests uh, just to finish off three sentences for me. Okay. <clears throat> and I'd just love to get your perspective on this. So in the context of capitalism, mm -hmm. finish off this sentence. I like. Innovation. Okay. I wish. An end to shareholder primacy. I just heard Milton Freeman turn in his grave. And he, the he, he and I would not have gotten along. <laughs> <laughs> and the final one, I wonder. I wonder how long the revolution is going to take. Beautiful. Now, Cressy, where can I send my listeners to learn more about you and the business? They can learn more about us on elvisandcressy.com. Um, Cressy is spelled K-R-E-S-S-E. They can come and see us in Kent when all of this pandemic is over because we have an open workshop and we love visitors. Um, and, and, and they can just call us. I mean, our phone number is on the website. And as you know, based on this, <laughs> based on this podcast, I pick up the phone. <laughs> Amazing. Chrissy, that was absolutely super. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Man, I am inspired. It's so rare you meet someone with such conviction and clarity about what's important in life and the impact that we can all make. A few things that resonated with me. One, you cannot be environmental and not social. It's the fact that we divided humans from the planet that has caused the problems our grandchildren will face 
and it's going to take brave CEOs to proactively assess how a business is damaging the environment and to then reinvent their business models. Two, having a clear singular North Star actually makes day-to-day -day decisions and life easier. In her words, there are fewer compromises and trade-offs to be made. Three, I loved how they're taking their business model and bringing it to the wider world. She spoke about the project to make machinery from aluminium cans using solar energy and how due to the open source design of that project, she received a thousand emails in three days from people that just wanted to help out. She left us with so much to consider, but the one I'll leave you with is, and in her own words, don't become the deer in the headlights. You've got to move. So start somewhere. I'll be talking to more CEOs over the coming months. If you found some truth or insight in this show, please do share. It's the best form of marketing. So even if you share with one other person, that helps me fulfill my purpose by sharing with the world that businesses can and are a force for good. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. Thanks for listening and until next time. This was hosted by Ravi Rai. You can connect with Ravi on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Ravi FPC. This series is sponsored by Four Points Consulting. We make change happen with conscience and with purpose. Check us out at www.fourpoints.net. That's www.fourpoints.net.